calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for mature audiences. It contains graphic violence and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Realm presents Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral, episode four. One evening, a week or so after the Fandango, Rosita played her guitar and sang to me as I reclined on our bed with a bottle of wine. She was playing a beautiful melody, a song she learned only while being in California, when we heard overlapping voices from outside. Thinking that it was perhaps friends paying a call, I set the bottle down and threw open the door. The five Americans stood outside. All of them carried guns, long guns for Chambers and Macintosh, and Beeman and Bohannon and Wetzel each had pistols. Wetzel took a step forward. We want you gone, Joaquin. We don't like your kind. <laughs> My kind? You mean Mexicans? This is America. You got no right to our land or our gold. You come here strutting that woman of yours like you better than us, like you got something we ain't. I was you, I'd pack up and take off while I still could. What's that mean? You're threatening me? My fists were clenched, but I wished I had a weapon of my own in one of them. Bohannon started muscling his way past the others. <clears throat> Call it whatever you like, but you leaving. Bohannon was every bit the immigrant that Rosita and I were. The difference was that he was white, an immigrant from Europe. I sensed Rosita moving around behind me, coming closer to the door. I turned my head long enough to say, No te acerques. And that's when Bohannon charged me. I thought there would be talking before an attack came, so it caught me by surprise. And I wound up on the floor with Bohannon straddling me, swinging those big fists into my face. Rosita screamed and the other men piled through the doorway. 
One of them bumped Bohannon's shoulder, knocking him slightly off balance. That was all the edge I needed. I rammed a fist into Bohannon's throat, and when the Irishman choked, I bucked him off. I got up swinging at Bohannon's cheek and opened a cut beneath the man's eye. Someone grabbed my shirt and yanked me backward. I kicked with one of my bare feet and heard Wetzel yelp. The little man released my shirt and I drove a fist into his stomach. Wetzel folded around it. I caught the back of Wetzel's head with both hands and slammed it into my own knee which rushed up to meet it. I heard a satisfying crunch and when I released Wetzel, blood was running from his nose and mouth. I was pretty sure I had broken his jaw. My Bowie knife was across the room on a side table near the bed. If I could get to it, I could make short work of the fight. In close quarters, the other men might hesitate to fire their guns, lest they might hit one of their own. But when I started to move, Macintosh swung the stock of his rifle against my forehead. Bright lights flashed in my eyes and I felt blood running down my brow. I wiped it with one hand, flinging droplets away and lunged for Macintosh's rifle. Macintosh evaded the charge and then Bohannon was back in it. He plowed into me, his weight knocking me into the floor again. Macintosh hit me with the rifle butt as Bohannon held me down and I felt a boot striking my ribs. Wetzel maybe, or Chambers. Beeman was already past the melee, headed for Rosita. No! Dejala en paz! In a panic, I struggled against Bohannon's bulk, trying to shake him off or wriggle free. But the man held me tight. The blow to my forehead was taking its toll. Blood filled my eyes and the room was going dark at the edges. Someone else kicked me. Blow after blow from a booted foot landing on my ribs, my hips, and finally, my head. Through blurred vision, I saw chambers behind Beeman and Rosita beyond them, her back against the wall. Beeman held her arms and forced her down onto the bed. I tried to cry out, but my voice wouldn't come. Bohannon's hands closed on my throat, crushing it. Darkness filled the room, swallowed the world, and then consciousness came flooding back for a moment and I saw Rosita snatch up the Bowie knife and drive it into Beeman's chest. The man howled and yanked it free, backhanding Rosita at the same time. And Chambers grabbed her arms and twisted it back, breaking her grip on the weapon. Clattered to the floor. No. I could see it there, only the length of my own body, away from me. Once again, I attempted to break the whole Bohannon hat on me, but I couldn't catch my breath, and the darkness returned, consuming everything. first thing I heard was a songbird, probably in the oak tree outside. I tried to open my eyes, but the light was too bright. Then I became aware of the pain. Every part of my body hurt, my head most of all. I moved it ever so slightly and nausea struck. I vomited, unable to avoid getting it on myself. Only then did I remember how I'd come to be here. Rosita! 
I forced my eyes open, made myself ignore the agony screaming from every muscle and joint, and drew myself upright. She was on our marriage bed, curled up in a tight ball, naked, blood everywhere. I rushed to her and scooped her into my arms. The men had brutalized her. She still breathed, but shallowly. Rosita. Mi amada. El corazón de mi corazón. What have they done? Her eyes fluttered open. She struggled to speak, and when she said my name, the word was barely intelligible. Joaquin, hold me, mi amor. So, so very cold. So cold. I'm here. I'll never let you go again. I sat that way for a long time, feeling her breathing slow, then stop altogether. Still, I held her, even after my own arms went numb. She had slipped away. I knew that, but I couldn't bring myself to acknowledge it. An hour passed, more. I wept until I was dry inside, a husk of who I once been. Without my Rosita, I was nothing. I lifted her off the bed and carried her down to the creek, where I bathed her and then myself. The cold couldn't bother her anymore. As for me, my sunlight was gone from the world. I feared I would never be warm again. When we were both clean, I carried her back to the little adobe. The oak tree that had once offered comfort and welcome now seemed sinister. Its gnarled limbs looked like claws, reaching down toward the house as if to snatch away any happiness inside. I shuddered but I passed beneath it and went inside. I took a folded blanket from a shelf and one-handed spread it on the floor. Rosita will never touch that bed again. It was forever tainted. I set her down on the blanket, then inspected myself for the first time. I didn't think any ribs were broken, but I couldn't be certain. I was tender everywhere. My entire body was a mass of bruises and cuts. The most serious seemed to be the gash in my forehead. I had lost a couple of back teeth. I explored the empty space with my tongue. Every muscle hurt, and when I tried to move around, I felt weak, as if every drop of my strength had been drained. I dressed and gathered the few possessions I couldn't spare. The silk scarf Rosita had given me on our wedding day. Some of her books, some food and water, all the gold I had, my bowie knife and musket, a few changes of clothes, a pickaxe and shovel. I looked for Rosita's rosewood guitar, but found it in a corner 
smashed into kindling. At the sight of it, I almost wept again, but tears wouldn't come. Sorrow consumed me, but alongside it in my breast, anger grew. I couldn't bring her back, but I could avenge her death. When I loaded everything I was keeping onto Blanco, I rolled Rosita up in the blanket and lashed her across Oso's back. The sun was low in the west now, and I hadn't seen a human being other than Rosita all day. My last act at the adobe was to use the remains of her guitar and some firewood, lamp oil, and the soiled bedding to set the house on fire. In the half-light of dusk, I rode away toward the cabin Jesus and Tres Dedos shared. The old Joaquin Murrieta had died in that adobe, along with his beloved bride. A new one had been born in the pain of her loss. That Joaquin forced war the virtues practiced by the old. Hard work, honesty, peace. The new one's heart had been hardened the blood within it frozen to ice. I saw light through the cabin's one window as I approached. Tying the horses outside, I went in to find Tres Dedos sitting at the table, head buried in his hands. Jesus, I recalled, had gone to Sacramento City to send some letters and buy supplies that were too dear in Sawmill Flat. Tres Dedos looked up briefly his eyes red and bleary, and groaned. Hey, Joaquin. <laughs> I got so drunk. What day is it? Is Jesus back? I couldn't bring words to my mouth. If I spoke, I would break down. Through the haze of his hangover, Tres Dedos seemed to recognize my pain, the tears streaming from my eyes. What's wrong, Joaquin? What is it? Then his eyebrows rose as he took in my bruises and cuts. What happened? They killed him, Manuel. Who? La Rosa. Yes, they... They ravished her. And murdered her. Who did? Words would no longer come. I turned my head toward the cabin the American shared, and that was enough. Tres Dedos lurched from the chair, unsteady on his feet. Them? I'll tear their hearts from their breasts and down. No! No, Manuel. They're mine. You... You're no killer. I am. I can make them suffer. I shook my head, wiped my nose, swallowed again. It hurt like swallowing fire. I wanted to hold on to that pain. Let it fuel my rage. They will suffer. Believe me. But I want to do it. I need to. 
You're hurt. You're in no shape. Not now. I'm leaving Manuela. I need to bury her. And I need some place to hide. To make plans. I'll come with you. You shouldn't do this alone. You need to stay here. When Jesus gets back, Jesus can take care of himself. He's your best friend. That's how I know he'll be fine. You can help me leave him a note that he'll find when he returns. I'll go with you and teach you what you need to know. If you went up against those Americans, well, you look like you've already learned what can happen. I'll help you get better and show you how to deal with them. But, but Jesus, he can take care of himself. I don't know anyone more capable than your brother. You're, you're saying I'm not? Not right now. You can't. You will be able to. Soon. I promise. As suddenly as the anger had come, it vanished, leaving me exhausted, spent. I could have curled up and slept for years. All right, you can come, but we have to hurry. I set our house on fire. I want to get away before anyone sees us, and I don't want anyone to tell me I need to go to the sheriff. No sheriff, you and me, that's all we need. Through the night we rode, heading north, avoiding towns, seeking out the empty spaces. At sunrise, I buried Rosita near the foot of Bear Mountain, north of the gold country, while Tres Dedos watched his expression solemn. Only then did the tears come again. And I knelt by the grave, weeping until the sun had climbed high into the heavens. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. 1850. California has officially become the 31st state in the Union. Per the Compromise of 1850, it has been admitted as a free state, while other new Western territories put the question of slavery to popular vote. This postpones the outbreak of the Civil War. Bear Mountain had earned its name from the abundance of grizzlies stalking its slopes. Trappers had taken many, but when gold was found near Sutter's Mill, most men turned away from hunting and trapping for their livelihoods. And the grizzly population had, by all reports, rebounded, which made it perfect for me who had no interest in need for human company. Where there were bears, there were caves. The first dozen or so we found were occupied. Growls or huffs steered us away. But eventually, 
We found one that had been abandoned. We spent the next several weeks on the mountain. My hair, it grew long and wild, and my beard took over most of my face. Manuel's face could barely be seen through his own wild beard. We ate when we wanted, slept when we were tired, and pissed where we pleased. Once, I rode to a town where nobody knew me and bought a new coat, model 1848 Dragoon, a six-shot, single-action pistol that put every other weapon I handled to shame, and a few dozen boxes of ammunition. I practiced with that and my musket until I was a dead shot with either gun. All the while, Tres Dedos tried to teach me. If you're going to kill men, I am going to kill men. Then you have to treat them like a wild animal. Sure. Some of them just weep and wet themselves and tremble while you're doing it. But others, they fight back with everything they've got. They bite, tear, flail about. And if there's anything that can be used as a weapon, They'll use it. The thing is, you never know which man will submit and which one will become an animal, desperate to survive. So you have to be ready for anything. I want to see those bastards beg for their lives. I want them to feel like Rosita did, knowing she was going to die. I want them to hurt. And you have to do it up close, not from a distance. It's harder up close, looking in their eyes. That's what I want. I don't care how hard it is. Where's that knife of yours? I fetched the Bowie knife I had bought in Los Angeles. Tres Dedos took it from me. Very nice weapon. Do you know how to use it? I've been using it ever since we got here. I've used knives since I was a boy. I don't mean to cut ropes or castrate sheep. I mean, on a person. Show me. I took the knife back faced Tres Dedos. I held the weapon in my right hand. My back hunched a little, legs spread wide. Stab me. I took a step to the side, lifted my left hand for balance and to draw the other man's attention, then stepped closer and drove the blade toward the midsection. Tres Dedos' right hand whipped out faster than my eye could follow and caught my wrist. Then he wrenched it and brought it down against his upraised knee. My wrist spasmed, and the next thing I knew, my knife was in Tres Dedos' hand, the edge pressed up against my throat. First thing to know, if you fight with knives, you're going to get cut. It's going to hurt. If the other man also has a knife, it's almost impossible to kill him without him getting you as well. I wasn't really trying to kill you, obviously. Second thing to know, never go at somebody with a knife unless you intend to kill him. He drew the blade away from my neck, reversed it, and handed it back. You didn't intend to kill me? I did, but I stopped myself in time. If I pressed a little harder, you'd be on that ground with your life ebbing away but I know when to stop. Third thing, you lunged at me with the blade angled vertically, up and down. That would have hurt if you would have hit me, but my ribs would have stopped it from penetrating too deeply. If you're going at a man's ribs, turn the blade sideways so it can slip between them. 
Like this? I turned the knife in my hand and jabbed toward Tres Dedos. No, hold it like you were. Then turn your hand, not the knife. Then, after you've stabbed, twist your hand back so as you withdraw the knife, you tear at your man's insides all the more. It's a bloody business, isn't it? The bloodiest. But if you want to see the terror in man's eyes, feel his tears against your skin as he weeps, it's the best way to kill him. You've done that? Tres Dedos looked out toward the horizon. I've killed men in about every way I can think of, Joaquin. I'm not proud of that, but I'm not ashamed either. I did what I had to do. In the war? In the war, before the war, after two. Do you think I'm ready for them? The Americans? Not yet. Strength isn't everything. It's only part of what you need. Let's keep working. I knew my period of mourning in the mountains had to end. The weather was growing cooler by the day. Soon the rainy season would start, the rivers would swell, and mining would come to a halt for several months. If I was going to fulfill the promise I had made to myself, it had to be now, before the Americans who murdered Rosita scattered to the four winds. It's time. I left my hair and beard long to serve as a disguise in case I encountered anyone I knew in the camps. Tres Dedos did the same, although his maimed hand might be a giveaway if anyone noticed it. I hung my musket and lariat from my saddle, stuck the pistol and bowie knife in my sash, and then my cousin and I rode down from the mountain and back to Sawmill Flat. The first stop was the claim that had been ours. The cottonwoods on the far side of the creek were bare-limbed, the hills beyond them looking like molten gold in the crisp autumn air. Men were working the claim and the neighboring one, but none of them were Jesus or the men I know first as neighbors, then as rapists and murderers. One of them stopped, knee-deep in the creek, and turned to us. I spoke before he did. Where's the man who used to work this claim? Mexican fella? That's right, Jesus Murieta. Last I heard, he head up to Moke Hill, some rich diggings up there. Folks are saying, what about the white man? Harry Love, took his poke and headed south for the winter. Santa Barbara, I think. South for the winter? Tres Dedos echoed. What is he, a sparrow? He used to be a deputy there, I remembered. The man in the creek nodded, that's right. Sold me the claim. Not sure if I got the best of the bargain. Seems pretty played out to me. Still finding color now and again, though. What about the men who worked the next one over? Chambers and the others? Never seen them. The man called out to his companions. Hey, hey, any of you fellas seen them as was here before? He was greeted with a course of nose and shaking heads. Looking back at me, he shrugged. Sorry. Reckon they either cashed in and moved on, or they just gave up. How long you been here? Kinda lost track of the days. About a month, I reckon. Give or take. I nodded my thanks, and Tres Dedos and I rode off. A month. That was about how long we'd been capped out on Bear Mountain. 
Chances were the Americans had abandoned our claim as soon as they killed Rosita, or as soon as they discovered that I hadn't died in the attack. And Jesus must have moved on almost as soon as he saw the note. Would he have told Harry? Or was Harry's departure just coincidence? I missed Harry more than I expected to. But it was the other Americans I was most interested in. For the last month, I had thought about little but killing them. And now they were gone. They could be anywhere by now. Back east, maybe. Wherever they had come from. But their gold-seeking efforts hadn't been very successful, or they wouldn't have had to raid my claim. Most men who came west to California expended their available resources to get here. Once here, they either struck it rich and went home, or struck out and stayed close. San Francisco and Sacramento City were full of men looking for work, and the growing towns of the gold region were packed with people trying to profit from the gold in other ways, many of them unsavory. Brothels, saloons, and gambling halls had sprouted everywhere like mushrooms after a rain. Considering their relative lack of success, I guess Chambers and the others were still in the area, either working a different claim or trying their luck at some other trade. They might not still be together, but that didn't mean that they couldn't be found. During our time on Bear Mountain, Tres Dedos and I had spent precious little of our gold. We pitched a tent for Tres Dedos among more than a hundred other tents in Georgetown, a place neither of us had ever been before. Because I argued that once people saw Manuel, they wouldn't forget him easily. I could blend in better without him. I was tall, with broad shoulders, and a deep chest. But I wasn't the size of a grizzly bear. On my own, I rode from town to town and spent some time in each, eyeing the locals, stopping in saloons and gambling dens. Miners busily, happily parted with their money, and I did the same, although with moderation. When I won at the tables, I made sure to lose most of my winnings so as not to be remembered. I also made the rounds of the diggings and the rivers in case the men had gone to work on other claims. Finally, at Fiddletown, I spotted a familiar figure. The town wasn't much more than a collection of weather-worn tents spread out around Dry Creek. Jack Bohannon was coming out of a saloon tent as I rode down the muddy track that passed for its main street. Half stumbling, Bohannon made his way from that tent to another, which he went in and didn't come out of again. I dismounted and hitched my mount to a rail down the road, then walked back past the tent. I heard snowing from inside, and not just from Bohannon, but from at least three men that I could determine, day sleeping. I figured them for either drunks or night workers, or perhaps both. Though without knowing how many were inside or whether someone might be awake, I didn't want to confront Bohannon yet. I had some questions for the man. I needed time with him, undisturbed by company. At least I knew where one of Rosita's murderers was, and that was a start. 
I pitched my own tent, not far from the one Bohannon shared. I spent four days and nights there, spending a little of my dwindling gold supply in the saloons and gambling tents, and keeping my eye on Bohannon. After those few days, I watched Bohannon and three of his companions go into the woods with axes and big two-man saws. They were timber workers then, at least until payday, at which time they became drunks. Now the money had run out, so they had to foul some more trees. Bohannon wouldn't be alone in the woods though, which meant that quiet was called for. I left my guns in my tent and the horse tethered beside it, then set off into the trees with just my knife and lariat. The other men had a head start, but once they started working, the noise made them easy enough to find. I settled a safe distance away and waited for an opportunity. It came after about three hours when the men called the break. Bohannon went into the trees to relieve himself. He struck out into the opposite direction from my location, so I had to hurry through the forest, circling around the work site. By the time I closed in on him, Bohannon was finished and heading back to join the others. Here in the woods, there was little space to use my lariat, but Bohannon was approaching a space where several big trees had already been fouled, creating a short gap in the forest. I raced to the gap's edge. I got the lariat spinning and let fly. The rope soared across the space and dropped down. I yanked it taut and it fell, and the loop closed around yeah. Bohannon's throat, cutting off his startled cry. I looped my end around a stout nearby tree. I pulled Bohannon backward until he was up against the trunk. <gasps> Bohannon's face was turning purple, and the hands clutching at the rope around his neck were already weakening. I wrapped the rope around him a few times so his arms were bound tightly against his torso, hands at his sides. Bohannon had a pistol and a knife in his belt. I yanked those and tossed them behind the tree. Now I showed myself. Walking around to face the other man, I loosened the pressure on Bohannon's neck slightly, enough to enable him to breathe and speak, then showed him the bowie knife pressing its sharp point against the big man's cheek. Do you recognize me? I've ne uh, never seen you in my life. Look closer. Look at my eyes, Bohannon. Imagine me without the beard and with shorter hair. Imagine me working a claim next to yours. Bohannon swallowed hard as recognition came. Marietta? That's right. I thought you was. You didn't think I was dead, or you might have at first, but you knew almost straight away that I wasn't. <laughs> Bohannon didn't answer, but his eyes showed that I was right. I know why you're here, but you got to know it wasn't my ideal. Who was it then? You're the one who attacked me first. You're the one who held me down while the others went for Rosita. It was Sam. He kept going on about you Mexicans taking white man's treasure and talking about what he wanted to do with your woman. We knew we couldn't stop him, so we decided to go with him to keep him out of trouble. You have a strange idea of keeping someone out of trouble. Keeping him safe, I mean. He were alone. You have killed him. You're right about that. Do you mean to kill me now? I could call for my friends. Try it. 
and I'll be your last breath. If you want to live, tell me where to find Sam, and I might let you go. Might? I'm after the one whose idea it was to attack and kill my wife. If it wasn't you, then... Bohannon's eyes shifted right and left, as if rescue might come from either direction. Not far away, I could hear the other workers in conversation, not yet worried about their missing comrade. That wouldn't last though. I had to finish this quickly. Where is he, Bohannon? He's over in Hangtown, working in a saloon there. You sure? Last I heard, you let me go now, right? I, I never meant you no harm. I had never thought of myself as someone who could kill an unarmed man lashed to a tree and defenseless. But if Bohannon lived, he would call out to his comrades, and then it would be four against one. I summoned the image of Rosita, curled up and bloody on our bed, and that made it easier. I reached forward, loosened the ropes around Bohannon's neck a little more, and as the big man swallowed, I whipped the Bowie knife across his throat. Blood spurted forth, spraying me in the face. And then I backed away and unwound the rope from around Bohannon and the tree. The big man pitched forward like a fouled pine and hit the ground, still twitching, blood bubbling from his neck and soaking the earth. I wiped my face and coiled my rope. Tres Dedos had told me it was bloody work, killing a man with a knife. But he also spoken of a look in a man's eyes when he knows death is coming for him. And that's what I had seen in Bohannon's. It was as intoxicating as liquor. And in that instant, I knew I would keep drinking from that bottle until all of Rosita's murderers were dead. You're listening to Blood and Gold, starring Richard Cabral. Blood and Gold is a Realm production in association with Stryker Entertainment. Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Blood and Gold stars Richard Cabral, based on the novel Blood and Gold, The Legend of Joaquin Murrieta by Jeffrey J. Marriott and Peter Murrieta. Produced by Marco Palmieri, Fred Greenhalge, Kaylin West, and Haley Wagreich. Adapted for audio by Greg Cox. 
Directed by Elizabeth Nolden. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Marcy Wiseman, Russell Binder, Peter Murrieta, Julian Yap, and Richard Cabral. Historical notes read by Elena Ray. Spanish dialogue translated by Alana Grafham. Regional dialect coaching by Luis Armando Mercado Campos. Sound design by Eric Mooney. Mixing, mastering, and additional sound design by Rory O'Shea. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original score by Juan Carlos Enriquez. Music supervision by Marcus Bagala. Production manager, Alexis Latshaw. Production coordinator, Angela Yee. Casting by Sunday Bowling and Meg Mormon. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Blood and Gold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Mm-hmm.